Hello, and welcome to a booby-trapped episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your Cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be looking at part two of our Corey Feldman trilogy with 1985's The Goonies. We'll jump into five-point inspection with Domino Effect, Class Warfare, Orque? Oregon Trail, and Corey Feldman. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Ice cream? Rocky Road, Mississippi Mud, Chocolate Eruption? Yo, amigo, are there any more groceries on the work truck that would need to be brought in? All I see in the fridge is ice cream. Oh, shit. Yeah, good call. Good call. I forgot the sodas. Uh, give me a second. I'll run out and grab them. Hold on. Ice cream? Sodas? Is that all you got? Yeah, man. Kids love that shit. Yeah, they certainly do, but I, I don't think you've thought this one all the way through. All that sugar, they're going to be running around here like maniacs. Look, okay, we're hosting a junior mechanic seminar. It'll be two hours tops. We ply them with sweet treats. They have some fun. They, they, they learn a few things. And then guess what? We send them back to their parents. No longer our problem. I think you're underestimating how annoying that two hours is going to be. I gotta disagree because uh, I just watched The Goonies. So I know how annoying children can be. Uh, so let's go ahead and discuss it. The threat of being disbanded looms over the Goonies, a group of misfits from a middle-class neighborhood on the brink of foreclosure. In a classic Us vs. the Rich story, the group only has 24 hours before the bank seizes their homes to expand the local country club and thus must embark on a Hail Mary adventure to save their stomping grounds. Can the Goonies uncover the booby-trapped fortune hidden by One-Eyed Willie, a pirate legend, or will the malicious family of counterfeiters stop them dead in their tracks? So Travis, we'll jump into five-point inspection, but you know I gotta know, what is your quick diagnostic of 1985's The Goonies? Well, let me just be clear. The opening skit was only half true. I'm, I'm sure when you read that, you <laughs> thought I was just gonna spend an hour and a half just shitting all over this movie. Not the case. It, it's, it's not a bad movie. I can see why it's charming and appealing. I think... I saw this movie too late to have the nostalgia mm -hmm. attachment that I have with Lost Boys. And, you know, next week I'm definitely going to have it with Ninja Turtles. This movie, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play my cards here because all the things I'm going to complain about are present in a movie called The Sandlot, which came out, I think, like six or seven years later. That was my mm -hmm. Goonies. So, like, everything in this movie, I can recognize that The Sandlot apes it, but... Again, I saw this movie in my late 20s, so the ship had kind of sailed. Uh, I think there's also the personal effect that this doesn't necessarily remind me of my group of friends growing up. So a lot of it's lost on me, but I can appreciate why if you saw this as a kid, it would be be an all time favorite. So I'll get into some specifics when we get to the five points. But this movie left me kind of cold. Alrighty, righty. Uh, I think what you're talking about with Sandlot is going to flow very well into Domino Effect. But uh, I will say I still love this movie. I, I but again, I have we have talked about this trilogy was going to wind up. It's Corey Feldman, but it's very much the nostalgia. I went back and watched it and very much still 
loved parts of this movie. It is by no means perfect. I think that this is, if I were to take my nostalgia hat off, I think looking at this would be a lot like watching 48 Hours for the first time, where it was kind of like, oh, this movie was good. It was all right, but it really kind of set the tone for a lot of stuff that came after it and did it much better. And that's kind of how I feel about The Goonies is The Goonies has a lot going for it. I think it pulls a lot of punches. I think it's a kid's movie, so they don't go into necessarily in-depth as they could have with some of the characters. Like, it would be fun to see, and by no means am I saying I need a Goonies remake, but if you were to make this in modern times, either if it was a miniseries or even just a, a, a movie done today, I think they would do a little bit more with some of those characters, especially if it wasn't PG, if it was geared. If you had... If the protagonists were children, but it was in a, in a a movie geared more towards, you know, young adults or something like that, I think you could have a lot more fun with it. Almost like, you know, Superbad is a movie about kids in high school, but it's a adult movie about kids in high school. And I think you could have had a lot more fun, and I think you could have pushed the boundaries with some of the character development if they had done that. But knowing that this movie is 1985, I don't think that's quite what they were doing in, in the cinema. So... I still very much enjoyed the movie. I was very glad to go back and watch it again. Uh, with that said, I, I openly admit it is not a perfect movie by any means. Well, I got a couple quick questions. Well, one comment, one question. First question, I'm not being sarcastic when I say this. Is there character development in this movie? No, no, not really. Okay, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't think really anybody went through some incredible journey. I mean, I get they're trying to save their home. But it's interesting you say they don't delve into any more adult themes. It feels like they did try to have two different kind of youth movements. Like if you were eight years old, you had the Goonies. If you were like 15 or 16, you had Josh Brolin and, and like their love story and the, and the stuck up rich kid that, you know, literally tries to murder Josh Brolin at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> I thought that was a yeah. little dark, uh, but it's interesting because the teenagers are present, but they play very much like children too. Like, I don't feel any real difference between how the Goonies behave and how the teenagers in this movie behave. It's so what's interesting about this is there's there's adult, very adult jokes, like when they break the penis off the statue and the kid goes, my mom's favorite part. And you're just like, oh, wow, this like they're like, it's you not even you, like you wouldn't subtle be here adult jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought what was interesting is. It's like they they very quickly brush over some very like what's my interesting themes like to this age like when Andy is going off about the whole thing like maybe she should have stayed with the jock like yeah he was trying to look down her shirt but shouldn't she be uh, like shouldn't she be seen as attractive and all this she's going down this thing I'm like wow they're actually kind of going through like what a girl going through puberty and like what is kind of going through her mind I'm like unfortunately it's about a 30 second like uh meltdown and then that's it we don't really touch on that at all like her having to grow up a lot of this is kids having to basically grow up. Like, we don't really go too far into that. We just kind of vary across the, you know, very shallow top of the iceberg type stuff. Like, oh, this is, you know, Mikey is having to grow up and understand people move on. Like, his brother's going on. And, and Josh Brolin's character, Brand, is having to, to grow on and, uh, you know, to move on past his family, stuff like that. And a lot of this mouth, I thought, was an interesting thing. I don't know why in the scene where he's talking about, like, this was his wish... 
you know, it didn't come true. He was going to take it back. Like, at a certain point, like, like, is his parents, did they have a divorce? Or, like, did his mom die of cancer? Like, my mind is like, it's got to be something dark. Like, he wanted something like that. And then his parents showed up at the end. And it wasn't until I thought about him, like, oh, his wish was just that he wasn't going to lose his home. <laughs> like, I don't know why I didn't make that connection at the moment. Because I'm like, oh, well, that's Mikey's thing is that he doesn't want them to be disbanded. So I'm thinking Mouth has to have something else why he's kind of a sarcastic prick. You know, granted, I love Corey Feldman's character, but at the same time, it's like I thought there was a little bit more towards that's his coping mechanism for something going on. Like maybe his dad's abusive or something like that, but that's not really the case either because he's helping his dad at the beginning or, you know, is his wish that they get out of poverty, whatever it is. So there's that that moment where that's kind of an emotional scene. The problem is I don't have any context why it's like I know it's supposed to be emotional. It's it's delivered well, especially from a child actor, because we both have a problem with child actors. The problem is, aside from the fact that I, I then have to assume like, oh, it's because they're they're getting broken up. Like, I don't have a lot to why this is supposed to be emotional to me other than the fact that it is, you know, a, a an emotionally shot scene. And when those moments show up, like you kind of said, they drop out of nowhere from the sky. And then just as quickly as you're kind of processing what's happening, the scene is over. I think it's Andy also uh, towards the end of the movie when they she sees like the dead body and then kind of has like an existential crisis about what it'll be like to die. Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, she's just hit puberty, but soon enough, she's going to be dead, just like this this pirate she found on the ground. And it, it almost feels like she's having her first glimpse of mortality. And I'm like, that doesn't really fit in this movie. And it's just before I can even process why she's having this kind of crisis, we're on to more hijinks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then you have the moment at the end with Mikey in uh one-eyed willie which apparently and looking at some of the trivia about this movie apparently in the book or the the uh, the the book adaptation of the movie it's explained a little bit more that mikey feels that he is the reincarnation of one-eyed willie and therefore like he is essentially looking at himself or like his past self and i'm like that's an interesting concept that is not even close to being approached in this movie i'm like that would have been kind of cool had we set those breadcrumbs uh, as opposed to you just kind of have a weird scene oh because that's it i guess in the in the book one-eyed willie has some kind of asthma inhaler or something like that and that's why mikey again makes some connection that he is the reincarnation of one-eyed will i'm like again that's kind of an interesting parallel that if you want to pursue that but you, you actually have to set those breadcrumbs and do that as opposed to do it in a book or it's supposed to be assumed from the audience because i didn't get that at all i thought it was just him trying to identify with being a loner and having a crew like the goonies which i guess might have been pieces of it but was not you know necessarily what was supposed to be happening in that scene yeah i know he drops the line like you're the original goonie or you're the first goonie but Mm. again before you can even process what that might mean it's over it's also interesting to think about uh, these kids, you know, the Goonies comparing themselves to pirates. It's like, how, how do you think they came across all that treasure? Probably a lot of rape <laughs> and murder. So it's it's just weird <laughs> that, yeah, you're trying to find this analog between you and One-Eyed Willie, who probably was closer to the Fratellis in demeanor than he is the Goonies. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they establish in the movie that he murdered his crew so they couldn't steal his treasure. So it is interesting. Mikey identifying with the pirate 
it would be him murdering his friends so that they can't leave i guess they can't take the go- the goondocks it's like there's an interesting parallel here that we're choosing not to go <laughs> yeah point. i forgot about the the direct mention of yeah when i Willie, kind of the the green-eyed monster you know got him and and he picked the money over his friends <laughs> um with that, so let's kind of get into our five points. Domino effect, we, we've kind of hovered around it. I'm not sure if you knew where I was going with that one, but I'm trying to think of a movie that came before this, and obviously it's it's difficult to try and do that when you watch this movie. Is there something that came before this? But to me, The Goonies was one of those movies that had, you can see a a lasting impression on a lot of movies that came after it. And, I'm, and even not just movies, because obviously there's a lot of um, influence on Stranger Things between the kids on the bikes and just the group dynamics and stuff like that. Stranger Things took a lot of influence from the Goonies. But you have to think, it was a few years after this, was Home Alone, where you started getting kind of the traps and hijinks from a kid. And even to that point, I'm like, Mikey felt like the architect or archetype for Kevin. And I'm like, I'm surprised they didn't, I mean, they, they essentially tried to recast Mikey. They just tried to find a kid that looked a lot like him, had some social issues or something like that. Maybe some family issues and um, like this and kind of took it to the next degree and they're fighting off criminals. Um, beyond that, uh, what you like the Sandlot, again, having these kind of kid dynamics. Like, There's a lot of stuff where you can tell, I think the Goonies kind of like I was saying with 48 hours, like it started something and then things came afterward that kind of improved upon that formula. Not to say that I think the Goonies was, was bad by means. I, I did like, you know, they established the, was it the Goldberg machine? Roy, is it Rue Goldberg machine? Rue Goldberg machine. The, yeah. Yeah. Because they give you that at the beginning of the movie. And then that way, when you start seeing a lot of the pirate traps later again, it's that you understand what's happening here because you've already been as an audience, you know introduced to it earlier in the movie in a different way like oh if these kids can make these things in their front yard a bunch of pirates in the 1700s i'm like okay i'll give you suspension of disbelief that they were able to kind of figure out their own kind of traps like this if if a a 10 year old was able to do it um and stuff like that but to, to that i mean can you think of any other influences that you could see the goonies kind of had on on movies after this well, real quick, since you're talking about the traps, I did enjoy tiny nitpick, won't hold it against the movie. But at one point in the cave, there's like a drawbridge like door created and it just has sparkly, pristine, <laughs> brand new looking silver chain like it was just installed yeah. from the Home Depot yesterday. L- loved that. Well, um, even then, like, it's one of those like that, that drawbridge didn't seem heavy either. It didn't look like it. It didn't feel like it was made of. There's a lot. And I guess if you look at there's a lot of weird blunders in this movie that, again, it's a kid's movie. So I'm sure that they weren't taking a lot of serious this as they should have. I, mean, I guess it shouldn't matter wh- who the demographic is. But there's lots of where a scene where somebody would lose an article of clothing and then the next scene they've got it back. And like there's a lot of like little blunders like that, that if you're paying attention, it's like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense here. Yeah, I, I, you were trying to say, was there anything that came before this movie that might have inspired it? The only thing I can think of was wasn't Stand By Me a couple years before this? I think Stand By was Me it was, or was it 83, I thought. Might have been. Because um, I'm trying to think. Oh, no, no. I that think was it also... was the next year, 86. Yep, my bad. 
So yeah, so, I, I think there was a little be- bit of the Goonies here too in, in Stand By Me. I mean, even, you know, the Lost Boys was 87, which is another kind of band of, of kids like that. So it is one of those, I don't know, I'm sure something came before this. This is just what sticks out in my mind. But even with it being a year later, yes, I mean, Corey Feldman is in Stand By Me. And you can tell that there was probably small influences that happened from the cast, you know, because they did the Goonies, they kind of brought that with them. But uh, yeah, I just, I think it's it's definitely one of those movies that, I think you can trace a lot of influence, either intentional or unintentional, back to this movie. Yeah, 100%. And I would say the only other... I, I think one of the reasons why The Goonies feels like like children's entertainment leveled up at this point it, is because of Steven Spielberg. Like, this feels like mm. if you were too young to enjoy Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe that's still a little bit too adult, but you like that sense of adventure... The Goonies does deliver on that. I will give it that it has that Spielberg level spectacle. And then, of course, you have Richard Donner, the director who, uh, you know, did Superman several years earlier. So he's got that sense of scale. So this kind of leveled up children's entertainment, in my opinion. Mm. Did you know they actually built a full scale pirate ship for the movie? Uh, I I mean, I I guess I kind of inferred that just from seeing that scene and Again, I saw this much later in life, but dude, I can't imagine how fun that set must have been. Like the water slides into that big water tank. Like I'm sure safety was paramount, but I, I couldn't imagine being like Corey Feldman or Sean Astin and getting to live and work in that environment for you know several weeks. Um. Yeah. Apparently, they kept the the pirate ship a secret until they shot it for the first time because they wanted the kids legitimate reactions and apparently when josh brolin saw it he just screamed out holy shit and they had they had to cut it (laughs) and they couldn't use the scene and they had to reshoot the scene with them knowing the ship was there because he was just so taken back by the fact that there was a full-scale pirate ship (laughs) oh that's such a shame that's i wish just let him get away with one shit well so they did use it, but another thing I thought was interesting is apparently the way that they wrote, which is a weird way to do stuff, but the way they wrote this movie was they were very specific where they used curse words so that if a, when they were like broadcasting on television, if they needed to censor it, they could cut it. Or if they couldn't cut it, there would be something loud in the background that they could cover it up with that would make sense so that there wasn't that issue because it again it was a kids movie that they were actually able to to make that a little bit easier for broadcasters. Huh, that's an interesting tidbit. I it's one of those where if I cared to go back and rewatch this it'd be fun to look for those kind of moments. Mm-hmm. Um so do you do you have a, a preference in where we go next in the the five point? Uh, as I said off air, Brett, I uh, just did a terrible job of, of sending my notes to myself this week, so I will let you steer this ship, no pun intended. <laughs> All right, so let's do let's let's mix it up. Let's do porqué. What is porqué? Uh, so the first time I actually laughed in this movie is. At first, I couldn't tell if Corey Feldman was just bad at speaking Spanish, like his mouth was bad at speaking Spanish, or if he was so fluent that he wanted to kind of put a rise into uh, the maid who let me let me look up her name. 
uh, Rosalita. So, but once I realized the gag, I really enjoyed that. Is it is it appropriate? Eh, I, I don't know if that would be in the movie if they made it in 2022. I enjoyed it, but my poor K, uh, which, which is why, why in the fuck does Rosalita at the end of this movie admit that she's got those jewels? I'm sorry, you're getting tortured by children, like threatening you to lock you in a dungeon and all this bullshit. If I'm that maid and I peek in that bag, uh, you just see me slowly fading into the background as I walk to my car and uh, the goondocks gets destroyed. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't have a, a, tr a, a clear answer, but maybe she also lives in the goondocks, and she realizes that the jewels are going to be used to save the entire neighborhood and not just Mikey's house, because that's also not very well established either. That apparently the bank is is Mikey is only fighting for his house, but his house somehow saves the entire neighborhood. Like, are are the jewels going to save everybody's home? Or or it is only his dad is the one who's having to sign anything away. I'm like, well, that's just one piece of property. Like, does his dad own, own everything all of it in and the rent it out? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Data, doesn't he literally like zip line from his house to the other house? I'm like, so Data does. Yeah. yeah data da zip lines. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so you're gonna tear down Mikey's house and that's gonna make more room for this golf course or whatever, but but Data's family is gonna continue to live across the street. Like, yeah, again, Rosalita, just give a little, that's a perfect way to kind of explain this a little more. Cause yeah, I was, the whole Mikey's house being the fulcrum, which all of this pivots on did, did not make any sense. And again, I know it's a kid's movie, but you could throw in a couple lines of dialogue to clean that up. Mm -hmm. I do love, I mean, all the shit they had in the attic was awesome, right? That was one of the dopest attics. And I think, you know, movie history, all the the weird pirate and like historical shit that apparently Mikey and Bra uh, Brand's dad are allowed he's allowed to keep in his attic. I'm like I feel like all that's historical documents that are supposed to be in the museum that he is curating or whatever he does. But yeah, apparently he just gets to keep all of it. So. Yeah, and and what's the so yeah is he keeping that stuff illegally? Because if not, couldn't you sell some of that stuff? and save your house like again the the house of cards that is this movie's logic it falls over with a with a strong gust of wind <laughs> yeah you can tell that was not the focus of the goonies it was simply to get the kids into a raiders of the lost ark situation <laughs> yeah uh but yeah the poor k was just i i don't understand i need more from rosalita's character in this i need i need her motivation and why she's got the heart of gold uh, and is willing to save the, the place that has a sex dungeon, as far as she knows. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, because she was brought in to help pack. She wasn't supposed to be a maid. She was supposed to help them pack everything, right? Which is another thing that's weird that you would hire a woman who doesn't speak any English to help you pack up your house. Like, she's not a moving company or anything like that. It's just like... There's no Craigslist bag. Was it a classified? You just put in like moving help. Like I don't understand how she even showed up in the first place. Yeah, and, and to that point, I think it would have just been easier. Just make her a neighbor, you know, friend of the family. Mm. But again, it's about getting the kids to the pirate ship and down water slides, and you know, hitting the Superman theme and the James Bond theme. <laughs> 
So we'll do class warfare next. What I think is funny about this movie is it just feels like just about anything out of the 80s, there was a strong class warfare subplot. It doesn't matter what, if there was a comedy in the 80s, somewhere in there, there was something about us versus the rich. <laughs> this movie also doesn't even really need to be in there that much because we hear about the golf course and then the next thing we see is them messing with the water pipes and messing and screwing up the golf course because i don't even think i think caddyshack came out after this movie where it was an, i think the tagline for that is like uh the the schlubs versus the oh, i don't even remember what what um caddyshack the tagline for that movie is was 1980 Oh, okay. So Caddyshack. So I guess that's where we kind of got the idea of the uh, the golf course. The rich people have to be taken down by by us regular folk here. But it's just so <laughs> weird to me to be shoehorned in because then you also have the rich asshole. Which I'll be honest, the first shot when he's using the mirror to try and look down her shirt, I didn't realize that's what he was doing, and I don't know if that's why they put the line in the movie later was to establish that. But I thought I was like. That's a weird thing to have in a kid's movie. I also thought Andy's skirt was a little short for this movie. Like, was that didn't need to be as as short as it was for any movie, kids movie or not. Um, but yeah, just it's very interesting to me that it, it was very that in a kids movie even that we had to go down the whole class warfare, vin or you know strategy or whatever you want to call it for, for the plot yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, but like you said, it really, they only kind of pay lip service. And that's the weird thing about this movie is stuff, again, just kind of drops in and is gone just as quickly. Because, yeah, in the mirror thing, I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't even pick up on that until you pointed it out in this movie. I forgot that they call back to it later. So this movie feels very Frankenstein. It doesn't then. Even the relationship between Steph and Andy, I thought, was like, oh, Steph, at the very beginning, she, when she's, like, bobbing for crabs, and then Andy feels like she's supposed to be from the upper echelon, I'm like, it feels like their relationship is supposed to be something we're supposed to... There's there's something more to that relationship that we don't get to find out about, because, like, why would they be friends? Dude, I can't imagine they go to the same school or have the same circle, so there has to be something here, like, where they childhood childhood friends and then andy's parents got rich or steph's parents got poor like i don't know there's a lot of that that's missing from the movie and that's where it comes down to the character developments like and i don't know if it's just because you have too many people and the movie what was it the movie's two hours isn't it i think just under yeah if it, and to, to that point you know the class warfare it's interesting that we're gonna do the class warfare where it, it's these kids trying to save their home their neighborhood from the banks but that's not going to be our real villain because we could have just left it that and then had them you know the 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 hijinks in the caves we're also going to add in a family of counterfeiters that <laughs> for some reason also reside in this and kill somebody who i thought was one of the bankers but i guess is was not i'm not sure who the guy they killed actually was do they own that restaurant? Does the mom own that restaurant, Mama Fratelli? I assume they have to because they have a counterfeiting machine in the basement, and that's not an easy thing to get in there. And and a son that is chained up, presumably. Yeah. Since the God knows for how long, but yeah, the, I thought the Fratellis were 
unnecessary and the level are you familiar with the term keystone cops brett uh, i am not so you might have to explain it to me and any of the audience who's unfamiliar with the term i mean it, the way i understand it keystone cops are just that that slapstick kind of comedy like basically hijinks ensue at all times the first half hour of this movie is just wall to wall that everybody's running around screaming the fratellis are all playing this hugely over the top it it became grating i thought they were the the ingredient that kind of spoiled the the stew if you will because the kids to a person they give pretty good performances uh, I think Feldman is much better used in this movie than he was the Lost Boys. I thought they took advantage of his talents mm-hmm. a lot better. But when the kids are all playing it so big as kids do, to then introduce Joe Pantoliano and Robert Dobby and, and Mama Fratelli. And we haven't even talked about, what's his name? Sloth? Is that his name? Sloth. We haven't yep. even talked about him. So there's just a few too many cooks in the kitchen here for me. And, and that's primarily due to the Fratellis. Well, and two, and what's interesting is the Fratellis feel like that's what's supposed to create suspense and like a sense that they're being pursued and time is running up. But the problem is them losing their house is also that. So it's one of those things like I don't know if they wrote it. Maybe this movie originally wasn't supposed to be for kids and it was that class warfare thing where it was supposed to be, oh, it's this this group of people trying to save their home. And they're like, well, this doesn't the children don't understand why there's a sense of urgency here. So let's add in some very, you know, two dimensional villains to chase them through the caves. And now the kids know that there's a these are bad guys because they're dressed in black and they have guns because truly it's one or the other. You either just need the crooks that are chasing them through the caves or you just need the bank that's trying to foreclose and take the homes. Either one of those is a substantial villain. The two of them together doesn't make they don't mesh well and they don't make any sense. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk about class warfare that the Fratellis are counterfeiters specifically. So to me, I feel like there's a way to streamline this movie where maybe you don't make the Fratellis as murderous as they are, and but make them still counterfeiters and criminals. And maybe there's some sort of subplot. They're trying to use the counterfeiting to save their home. Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I think there's a way to to trim down some of these elements and, and make a better actual movie. But again, we're just, we're going for just a fun kids movie. Right. I mean, let's face it. I'd still rather watch the Goonies than not at the museum. So. You know Ooh, what? That's I, a I, tough might, one. I might shock you. I'll probably take night of the museum. See, you don't have the nostalgia. That's the problem. That's you fair. don't have yeah. the nostalgia to, to give you the Goonies. So, uh, Oregon trail. What is what is what I, I'm very interested to know what you're doing with this one. Um, as much as I loved the pirate set, I thought that was great. I I loved the atmosphere of them shooting on location in Oregon, like those big, mm-hmm. like green, lush hills with like giant pine trees overlooking the ocean. Um, it, it just gave an atmosphere to this movie that I, I thought was lost once they started going into some of the underground stuff that just so clearly was a set. Uh, but I enjoy, like you said, the Stranger Things piece where, you know, it's just kids riding around bikes, you know, through their neighborhood, which happens to just be this scenic Oregon coastline. So uh, mm-hmm. I just like to shout it out every time when there's a lot of practical locations in movies because you just you, you see less and less of it. 
Yep. I uh, <laughs> I did think it was interesting. I actually had to start looking at it because I'm like, were there pirates in Oregon? I, I thought pirates I usually associate with the East Coast and the Caribbean. And it's like, oh, yeah. It's like, hypothetically, there could have been pirates in, like, the Northwest. It's like, it would have been very rare. And if I guess he is a prolific pirate. He would have been running from a lot of stuff if he needed to get all the way to Oregon to escape. But hypothetically, there could have been a pirate up there. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I guess that that makes sense to some degree. I Somehow that's the part of the movie I needed to know more history on as opposed to, you know, what was that? Why was the Mike's house, Mikey's house being foreclosed, the linchpin to the neighborhood crumbling? But, uh. Did what? Yeah, was, it was absolutely beautiful. Was the hmm? ghost of One-Eyed Willie piloting the ship at the end, or was it did the boat just naturally escape the cave because they opened some booby trap or something? I think the boat naturally escaped the cave. That was not the original ending of the movie. The original ending of the movie was just going to be, I think, them back at their house, and Mikey finds the bag of marble, the marble bag in like his his pocket, or I think maybe the uh, um. The woman who's going to help him pack was it Rosalie? Yeah, she finds it and his house, and that's when like, oh my god, we have the money, we can save it. And they decided that they wanted to make the movie a little bit more spectacle, and then you could have that flat, the shot at the end with you know the grandiose ship sailing off into the into the ocean and all that. So, which, if I were Mikey, I'd be like, wait, that's my boat. There's way more on that boat <laughs> yeah, than in this, this little bag, bag of marbles. Here. Yeah. You can have it. I also like that also mouth, a, uh, his Spanish speaking ability a little bit declined there at the end. You know, at the beginning of the movie, he's a, a fluent speaker. At the end, he's, you know, <laughs> no right, no sign, no no sign. Yeah. Well, he's just he's exhausted, man. They've just gone through all of those caves and all that stuff. So it's to me, it's understandable. You know, my my Spanish would be much worse in I, any situation, but definitely after I've gone through a bunch of caves. I will say there was a moment because uh, I'd only seen this movie once. I was like, are they going to let the Fratellis just suffocate in this cave and die? Because that will be a dark ass ending for them. <laughs> uh, but then I yep. quickly realized, no, that's not how this goes. But Yeah, <laughs> granted, it would have been interesting if that that essentially was how they ended the movie was just them dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was just going to be like we never cut back to them. So you kind of imply like the last place we left them is in this cave. But uh, yeah, they, they have the classic arrest them on the beach scene. Yep. Where every somehow everybody. Oh, my God. That was that. Might, <laughs> that might be my favorite line in the entire movie. I laughed out loud and I looked at Kate when the two fucking cops show up on the four wheelers and then one goes. Those kids weren't there before. And the other one looks like, well, they are now, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) The delivery of the net, well, they are now, Dave. I about died. I was like, that was the most Brett Mosier delivery of a line I've I've seen in a long time. Well, they are now, Dave. (laughs) You fucking idiot. Yeah, for, again, for discernibly no reason. I have no idea why that bit of character was splashed in there, but I like it. Just such such sass from the other cop on the four wheel. Like, those kids weren't here before. Well, they are now, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I want to know what that partnership looks like. <laughs> Where I want the spinoff movie of just the two of them patrolling the beach. <laughs> so the the Oregon coast. 
<laughs> oh. All right, well, I think that brings us to our last five point, just obviously Corey Feldman trilogy. We want to talk about Corey Feldman. So you kind of, you know, hinted at it a little bit. You thought that the Goonies did a better job using Corey Feldman than uh, than the Lost Boys did. I have to gr- agree completely. I already talked about it a little bit. I thought his delivery of the scene when he's trying to, with the wishes and all that, was a great delivery. I just wish the rest of the movie had supported that scene because the problem is, you get it, and then afterward, you're kind of like, like, and maybe other people didn't have the same problem. But I was like, oh, what was, what was like, what was his wish? You know, I really want to know what. Like, he's so emotional about it. But then, I guess, the logically, it would be that he's not going to lose his friends or his home. But I'm like, it just felt like there's more to it than that because Mouth never really felt like when Mikey's distraught at the beginning of the movie about everybody having to disband. Mouth never really seemed like he's always cracking jokes. It doesn't seem like it's going to affect him that much. So. When I guess he finally, you know, allows a, a raw nerve out there. It just, it didn't, I didn't have the background I needed to have that scene as impactful as it should have been. Yeah, and ultimately that's, that's kind of nihilistic for a kid, you know, acknowledging I didn't get my wish. So also fuck all these other people's wishes too. Like, that's a heavy thought process for a kid to have. Uh, but again, it, it it's surrounded by nothing that, that serves the scene to give you any more information about Mouth. But uh, yeah, I mean, Corey Feldman, kind of adult beyond his years. And, and obviously we talked about it in The Lost Boys. There's probably like a sad reason for that, too. But he's on full display in this movie. I think he's he's the funniest part. Uh, and he really turned up the, the dramatics in that one scene, albeit not supported by the rest of the movie. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I will say, because he's wearing a members-only jacket, there was a part of this movie uh, that I just realized that most of my fashion, I think, is just hodgepodge from the Goonies because I have several members-only jackets. Uh, Chunk, I think, Chunk's style is fantastic. I absolutely loved everything he wore in this movie, Um, down to the point where I probably own something very similar to most of (laughs) those Hawaiian shirts and ridiculous pants, so... I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I, hmm? I'm actually wearing, you can't see my legs, but I've got the Josh Brolin sweatpants with bicycle shorts over them. <laughs> so yeah. Oh. The, the so. random 80s fitness equipment shown in this movie by brand, that little thing that he stretches to do the arm workout. The, the spring, the yeah. spring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. So I think with that, we can move into a couple of our other segments. What do you think? Let's do it, you goonie. Let's do some. I also think it's interesting that they're called the Goonies, but we're pretty far into the movie before we find out why they're called the Goonies with the Goondocks. Because I was always I could never remember why they were the Goonies. The other thing I think is interesting is there's you can tell that there's pieces cut out of this movie that kind of like there's scenes that were dependent on them for starters when he talks about the oath like never say die like that's a super iconic line from this movie never say die goonies never say die and there's a whole oath to the goonies that i don't think is ever said in this entire movie i mean then why do you assume there is one because i've seen it i've seen the goonies oath there is a and he referenced mikey references the goonies oath that's the whole thing about never say die goonies never like so i'm like uh, that isn't got that cut out the oath though the, never say die. that's part of it 
Oh, it's it's much Never longer. say die is part of the oath. Yeah. Also, there's when they're at the beach, I guess there's a, they, they say, like, what did you have to do down there? And they talk about fighting a giant octopus. There's actually a scene where they fight a giant octopus in this movie and they cut it out because it didn't make any sense. The problem is there's a scene that references fighting a giant octopus that they couldn't cut out on the beach scene. So there's a lot of that where it's like something happens. There's another scene that they cut out that I thought added so much more to it. So there's a shop shop and save scene, or I think is what it's called. But there's a scene where Mikey and his friends, they go to like a 7-Eleven or like a convenience store. And the asshole rich kid is there. And he takes the map from them teases them and then basically rolls the map up and pretends like he's going to smoke like lights it on fire like he's going to smoke it like a cigarette and they get it back later in the movie you can see there's burnt edges on the map which then explains why the map suddenly has burnt edges to me it also goes back to that whole class warfare thing where it's like the rich being total assholes to the people who are about to lose their home like that seems like that was a scene that would have been very important to this movie to again understand why they hate the rich kids. And I think it also would have added another depth if maybe they were a little hesitant to bring, because they are a little hesitant to bring Andy in when Andy shows up at the the broken down rush. I'm like, oh, because she's part of the, she's part of the elite and they're the outsiders. Why would they want her in? Especially if, you know, you know, job, whatever the, the guy's name is, teased him earlier. I'm like, there's, there's certain pieces. Again, it's just, it feels like there's little bits missing that, they could have really just made this a better movie if you either left it in or kind of decided to expel upon a little some of it. Yeah, and again, I like you've already said, this is the nostalgia trilogy. I think that's why you enjoy the movie more because when you first saw it, at whatever age you were, you weren't necessarily picking up on all these loose threads. Whereas as an adult, if you see it the first time, it's kind of all you can think about other than the kids need to turn it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready for some blue book? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So the sticker price of this here flick was an estimated $19 million. Now, I'll tell you this. U.S. and Canada and worldwide are pretty damn close. All right. They're only about a million off. So I'm only going to ask you, ask you one number. Can you tell me what you think this movie brought in? What do you think it grossed? Uh, I'll say $57 million. Okay. Not not far off. Not far. Total worldwide, again, with that only being a million more than the U.S., was $64.5 million. Yeah, and you know what? I was going to go 60 because I, I've kind of started to game this system a little bit. Because I mm-hmm. what I hear in Hollywood is that you got to make three times your budget to be considered a success. So movies that I feel like are a success, I'm usually just doing some form of multiplying what it costs by three. That's a, <laughs> that's a dirty little secret of the Hollywood chop shop. All right, but hey, it's fair though. You know, it's you have your you have your uh, your methods. Speaking of methods, are you ready for some tag and title? Uh, both my favorite and least favorite moment of the week. So I will openly admit I had a bit of a rough week. So I did not. I don't think I brought my A game. And you also week, didn't but do eight different taglines. 
Just the three? No, no, I didn't do eight different taglines. All right, all right. So, this is, are, are you ready? So, Travis, I'm going to give you an official tagline to the movie. I'm going to give you a tagline to a movie I found adjacent, and I'm going to give you a tagline I created myself. What I need you to do is tell me the official tagline for 1985's The Goonies. Are you ready? Hit me. A million dollars worth of adventure. Never say die. Take the oath. Join the adventure. You say you didn't do your best, but you kind of planted some seeds where all of those make sense throughout the podcast. Oh, yeah. I didn't say I wasn't going to be a son of a bitch. Uh, I just said I didn't create a great tagline this week. <laughs> um, I'm going to say never say die is your creation just because it seems so easy but i don't think it was in maybe like goonies never say die but so i'll say you made that one up no 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 no. all right i know the music's playing never say die is an actual tagline you wanted me to overthink that so that's an actual tagline take the oath is the one you created a million dollars worth of adventure is that what you said mm-hmm I can't even ask for clarification because I don't even know if I'm right. I get that. I'm going to say you went like real obscure and you did like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. For that. Inconceivable. One. Well, I, I just felt like the whole thing where you think I'm getting in your head to get in my head felt very Princess Bride. Oh, um, yeah. You, you poisoned them both, <laughs> didn't you, Brett? Yeah, I poisoned <laughs> us both. Uh, you are right and wrong in many instances so I, i'm talking about just oath. the podcast yes right yeah just the podcast oh, okay. we won't get into anything else right now take the oath join the adventure was an official tagline for the movie never say die was mine just because again i love that and i was surprised it was not an actual official tagline a million dollars worth of adventure was from 1935's captain blood you weren't far off with the obscurity. Do you know why 1935's Captain Blood is relevant? Uh, uh, Captain Blood was the second in command to One-Eyed Willie. That is the movie that Sloth is watching and recreates when he go when he. So yes, that well is done. I'm that applauding. was the. Well done. <laughs> so yes, that was the adjacent tagline this week. Um, this. Honestly, pulled some some stuff from like the the fifties and sixties where the ta other taglines were insanely long, and I don't understand why. So we also had they call themselves the Goonies, the Secret Caves, the Old Lighthouse, the Lost Map, the Treacherous Traps, the Hidden Treasure, and Sloth join the adventure. We also had the Pirates Map, the Villainous Crooks, the Underground Cavern, the Booby Traps, the Skeletons, the Monsters, the Lost Treasure, and the magic that is the Goonies. And last but certainly not least was. It's excitement all the way as Steven Spielberg and Richard Donner, the makes of Indiana Jones, Gremlins, and Superman combine forces to create the family adventure of the year. All of those fucking sucked. <laughs> yeah. And, those uh, aren't taglines. They're basically synopsis. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but no, but excellent, excellent work. Excellent work. Thank you, sir. Do you have a time capsule for us this week? I do, and I bet I bet if anybody were uh, 
putting a wager on it, they would have said that I would point out that the guy who played Sloth, uh, John Batsusak, a former football player, died shortly after filming. But I'm not doing that. Uh, we, we didn't talk much. Only ab- kind of. Yeah, only kind of. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk too much about the Fratellis other than the fact that they don't need to be in this fucking movie. But one of the Fratelli brothers, not Joey Pants, but Robert Davi, one of the most iconic that guy, bad guys from the 80s. Do you recognize his face from anything, Brett? Oh, boy, I feel like I should. But I do not. So this was only his second movie, and he plays Jake Fratelli, a a clear villain. Uh, One year later, he works with Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie called Raw Deal, playing, surprise, surprise, a henchman. Uh, 88, he plays uh, opposite Carl Weathers in Action Jackson, playing, playing Tony Moretti. And you'll never believe this, but he was a mobster. But here's the one that I think you'll know him from, Brett. He, All right. He is one of two FBI special agent Johnsons in Die Hard. You remember the black guy and the oh, white shit. guy have the same exact name. They're both FBI special agent Johnson. He's one of the two Johnsons. Was he the bigger or the smaller Johnson? Uh, he was older, so I'm going to say he's the bigger Johnson because he gets excited when they're riding in the helicopter because it reminds him of Saigon, which is such a fucked up thing to say. <laughs> Uh, but then his partner points out that he was in diapers for Saigon. So, uh, yeah, Robert Dobby. And then closes out the 80s by playing a Bond villain in uh, License to Kill. He was Franz Sanchez. Um, so, yeah, iconic villain that uh, he definitely peaked in the 80s. But uh, there was a short time there where if you needed a sleazy henchman, Robert Dobby was your first call. I think if he wasn't a professional, he was at least professionally trained as an opera singer too. Like when he is singing, I I believe he actually did opera. Yeah, he has a kind of side hustle as a as a, a opera singer. Yeah, so he's got some musical chops as well. Very nice. Yep. Well, Travis, I actually have an additional time capsule for you. It's not, I don't even know if it's time capsule. I just didn't know where to put this little tidbit. All right. The OC of information. So. I'm going to read this the way I read it. All right. I'm not going to try and paraphrase or anything like that. So according to some of the trivia I came, I found, I came across for this movie, the wall calendar scene around the nine minute and 50 second uh, minute of this movie shows October of 1985 around the six minute and 43 minute mouth indicates that it is a Saturday. The newspaper front page seen around the 43-minute mark is dated October 24, 1985, which was a Thursday. All of this would mean that the action takes place on Saturday, October 26, 1985, which incidentally happens to be the exact same day on which the events of the original Back to the Future take place. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when did, when did so that... if we want to try and say that this is a combined universe when marty mcfly goes back in time the goonies are discovering one-eyed willie's treasure at the same time wait he doesn't what do you mean though oh okay so you're saying the night that that shit happens at the mall in back yes. to the future where, where was back to the future set was that california 
But somewhere in Oregon, I... the Goonies are doing their thing, is what you're telling me. Yes. Damn. Okay. That's very interesting. Wow, that's a deep cut, Brett. Well done. <laughs> can you believe, can you believe we've done this many movies and haven't done Back to the Future yet? It's kind of surprising. I it's it's gonna ha- we're gonna have to do it's I feel like that well, that's one of those special occasion movies, right? Like you don't just do Back to the Future. Yeah, maybe that's, that might be one of the first where we just do an actual trilogy. Where for the trilogy we do the Back to the Future trilogy. Yeah, I, w- I would present that or Die Hard as the, the best two options because they stopped mm-hmm. making Die Hard after Die Hard 3. I don't know if you know that. There's no more. Well, just that. like Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah just the three. They yeah. both stop after three. Yeah, just the three. So for once, this will not be a gag. I legitimately don't remember what chop shop you got this week. <laughs> what did you get? Alrighty. All right, let's do some chop shop. This week, I got sci-fi. Sci-fi, yeah. All right. So, um, we'll just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna start it off and see what you think, all right? I'm ready. So, we open in space, hovering above a rocky planet covered in dome-like structures, all right? A small ship approaches from out of orbit, just off of screen, with a giant Federation logo crossed out and basically kind of like crudely painted, maybe spray painted on the side, property of the separatists painted over it. The ship begins to descend into orbit. We cut to members of the colony and their everyday lives, focusing on the lives of seven children and their parents. I really did like the opening of the movie, seeing the kids in their environments as the crooks were, that the Fratellis were driving through. Yes. I thought that was pretty cool. So I, I wanted to keep uh, kind of that, that uh, vibe. Um, in the background of each scene, We'll see the ship previously hovering outside the planet coming closer and closer uh, to the planet, to the uh, to their colony, until finally a cloud of smoke and dust bursts up outside as we settle on Mikey and Brand at their home. Mikey and his brother Brand can be heard fighting about life on the colony. Uh, maybe a little bit of exposition about what the Federation is, you know, the Federation forces, maybe a little bit about fighting the separatists or something like that, just to give a little bit of background as to what those two forces are um, that occupy much of, of space right now. Um, maybe a little drop about bounty hunters space, but we'll do the good. We'll get to that. So Brand, um, they're fighting because Brand has enlisted into the Federation army and act more to do with wanting to impress the local officer's daughter, Andy, than any sense of duty or adventure. Mike feels his world is, or Mikey feels like his world is starting to get away from him. While he pines for adventure, what he really wants more than anything is for his group of friends, the Goonies, to remain intact. His father disappeared years ago, and he's beginning to feel a lot of these feelings again, like, you know, people are starting to leave him. So that's going to be a major motivator for Mikey in this story, is trying to, to keep that together because he doesn't want to deal with the loss like he did with his father. Um... While talking with Mouth and Chunk about his brother leaving, Mouth makes it clear that he has absolutely no desire to stay and dreams of being a bounty hunter or a space pirate, the life of freedom away from the adults. 
Chunk can't stand the thought of being in danger and tells Mikey that he's not going anywhere. And while Mikey is relieved to know that, he also knows that life yoked with Chunk is really no life at all, because Chunk is a bit of a coward. Um, I did. That's one of the things I didn't like about this movie is when Chunk just immediately sells out his friends. I'm like, that's kind of. I grant that he's a child. I get it, and it's a kids movie. It still sucks how quickly he turns uh, on them. But um, so yes, at this point we're introduced to Data, who arrives with a small drone that he's built. As the group marvel at Data's creation, an explosion near the walls of the Colony Dome can be heard. An alarm goes off. People get begin to panic and run when Brand grabs stop uh, grabs somebody and stops them while they're running by. They explain that what, the inner wall of the biome has been breached, but the two safety walls outside of that are still intact. So we don't have to worry about the pressurization or anything like that. So um, <laughs> I feel like that was a shot at 2017's life right there, Brett. <laughs> they're under attack from separatist forces. Data's drone flies straight up into the sky, and the group watching a small portable screen as two large mechs begin assaulting the outskirts of the city. Below them is a small band of separatist forces that are running between the legs of the, the ar their armored counterparts. The group run inside for shelter as more explosions can be heard. Mikey asks why um, why would they would be attacking a small science facility when Mouth starts to cheer that finally something exciting is happening. And obviously Mikey and, and, and you know Mouth will maybe get into a little bit there. Chunk is of course scared when the power suddenly goes out and the colony is reduced to emergence reserves. Over a small radio, the group hears that the Separatist forces have taken over the small military base uh, and to remain inside. All outside communications are jammed, and surrender is the best option. Chunk immediately puts up his arms and begins to walk towards the door when the group pulls him back and tells him that he's not allowed to surrender. As the group try to decide what they're going to do, Mikey remembers stories about an old military bunker his dad used to tell him about underneath the colony. He convinces the group that if they can find the weapons, that they can help fight back the Separatists and save their home. The group sets out, looking near an abandoned mining tunnel that sounds a lot like part of the story that Mikey remembers. As they begin to enter the tunnel, they hear a shrill scream. Andy and her friend Steph were out uh, with a group of boys when the attack started and were run off the road. They're abandoned by the boys and the two were hiding in the caves when the goonies find them. Meanwhile, the echo and the shrill scream grabs the attention of a small outfit of spe uh, separatist forces, the Fertility Squad, with their android. The group enters the cavern and begins to make their way through the twists and turns. At a certain point, Chunk can't bear to go any further and, and decides to stay back and act as, as lookout for the group. The Fratellis are hot on their trail when eventually they catch up to Chunk, and Chunk breaks chunk breaks almost immediately giving away the kids plan and you know telling them that there's this military that they're hoping there's a military base down there the fratellis try to use their android to send a communication back to their squad at the surface level of the colony but the caves make it impossible the fratellis are very cruel to the android calling it worthless and scrap as they continue to pursue the children all the while chunk and the android begin to build a friendship as they you know continue their descent into the cavern this is where we're, I don't have the exact scenes, but I want to have a couple scenes as the kids are figuring out. I don't know if there's going to be traps or as they're getting through the caves. Uh, I want uh, to focus on Mikey dealing with the fact that he's feeling alone and weak because he doesn't have his father. We're also going to find out that Mouth, in my take of the Goonies, is kind of the opposite of Mikey. He also lost his father, but he kind of becomes a selfish prick, and it's just the two of them basically how 
the same thing happened to both of them, but they put, took completely different paths in life. Um, Brand is also at this point, we're going to realize that he doesn't think that he can live up to his father's expectation. And really another part of him joining the Federation forces is essentially him trying to escape or get away from his life because he feels like he can never, you know, live up to to who his father was to the family. And rather than deal with that, he has to get away. So as they continue to go through, we're having some of these, you know, dialogues between characters. The children finally reach what they believe to be the military bunker. Unfortunately, they can't get in, obviously, because the power is down. So we're going to find out that Steph is basically the daughter of a mechanic. And she's going to have to fix the door so they can get inside. In doing so, it's going to be revealed that a lot of what she's trying to do is hang out with Andy because Andy is of the upper echelon of the colony because her father is an officer, a military officer. That really Stephanie is trying to, where she does really feel like she's friends with Andy, a lot of it, at least the beginning of it, was her trying to kind of move up in society. She felt like she was on the bottom rungs. And we'll have some discussion between that where Andy, you know, will reveal that, you know, being proper and being at the top isn't all it's it's cracked up to be. And at this point, Steph will kind of realize what her roots are and kind of become more comfortable with being, you know, the daughter of a mechanic because she's able to get everybody inside. Um, again, there's no electricity or anything like that or panels, so she has to figure out basically how to fix the door. Once our children, our group of goonies, get inside, they realize this is actually isn't a military base or a bunker it's an abandoned pirate holdout inside they find a fully operational spaceship and a mech as the goonies try to figure out how to pilot the machine a hologram pops up and it's mikey and brand's dad we find out he was actually a revered space pirate uh, but he and his crew crashed on their last endeavor and that is why the father disappeared um, in addition to that, he's going to explain that Mouth's father was actually part of the crew and that Mouth's father sacrificed himself so that they could try and get back to their families. But ultimately, all of the, they wound up crashing into the cavern and none of them were able to get out. So, um, you know, the father will leave a heartfelt message for his boys. It allowed Bran to realize that he was always worthy of his father's, you know, uh, you know, praise and all that. And he'll kind of, you know decide to to be the man of the family and and help his family out also mikey will be able to kind of deal with those feelings of being abandoned and mouth will also realize maybe not being a selfish asshole isn't the right thing i see your hand is up quick question so in in this space cavern with this spaceship the the dead bodies of both kids fathers are in this ship is that what you're saying we're not going to, I don't know where the skeletons are going to be because I thought the same thing. Do they find the skeleton, take the skeletons out, but they will find a message from the dad. So maybe at some point they do find skeletons somewhere in the cavern and they realize those skeletons where were the father. I'm not quite sure. It will, for the point for right now, it's just they the find the hologram, message the message. The yeah, the catch. heartfelt message that was left behind. Oh. Um. So right about the time the message ends, uh, it's it's time for the Fratellis to arrive and take the children hostage. And, tr and basically, they decide that they're going to take the ship and the mech for separatist forces, right? Chug pleads with the Fratellis not to hurt his friends and throws himself at them only to be injured. So this is him finally getting over his cowardice, um, which enrages the android SL0T4. <laughs> attacking the special uh, the separatists and killing them 
The action causes SL0T4's programming to start a self-destruct sequence because it decides he's gone rogue because it killed his, I don't want to say masters, but you know, uh, who, who he was worth. When Data jumps in and is able to basically hack it and turn off the self-destruct sequence and the android's prohibitor, SLOT4 is now able to pilot the mech and the children return to the surface and take the Separatists by surprise. After wiping out their invading forces, the colony is able to retake control. The movie ends with a narration of Mikey talking about his friends and their adventures in his father's ship and the mech. I it, it's it's five out of five, if for no other reason than turning Swap into the android and the, the naming <laughs> mechanism there. <laughs> that is absolute chef's kiss. And uh, for some, I think he's going to be tight with Hammerbot. Like I feel like, oh yeah, now that he's got his inhibitor off, he's going to go out and meet Hammerbot, and they're going to be quite the formidable duo. Yep. But I also felt uh, we didn't touch up on it at all, but it also kind of gets rid of that. Um, I didn't think they necessarily exploited sloth in people with disabilities. I thought they did it somewhat tastefully in the movie because it could have been a lot worse with what they did. But at the same time, we we kind of get away where we don't have to really worry about that at all. If it's just, a you know, a uh, an, an android that is being misused. Yeah, you, he can still have that hulking presence and be super strong, but yeah, it feels a little mm-hmm. less disrespectful. I like that. So, I uh, I wasn't sure also if you were if you were gonna go with like a Starship Troopers crossover because for a hot second the world you were describing when that first attack happened I'm like oh it's gonna be the fucking bugs from Starship Troopers <laughs> which would be a really weird combination with the Goonies but I wouldn't put it past you yeah so I I got kind of rid of the class warfare. There's still kind of the hints at, you know, upper and lower class and stuff like that and and where you are, but they're not trying to necessarily get rid of a foreclosure. And then it also, I think, makes the Fratellis make a little bit more sense. Yeah, no, and and ultimately the most important part is is the heart at the center of the movie. I I like Mouth Mm -hmm. figuring out like, hey, I shouldn't be so bitter about my dad because he did die being a hero. I like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well done, sir. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. So, always, you know, I like to to do the spark notes of character development, but I like to make sure it's there. <laughs> so, I think that brings us to the end of our show, Travis. Do you have any parting words? What were your final thoughts for the Goonies before we spin the Wheel of Destiny? Uh, I thought you really nailed it with your early analysis when you reference back to 48 hours. I think if I had seen this movie, you know, as a younger person and not seen the stuff that the Goonies helped create later, I think I would have more of appreciation for this movie. As it stands, it it deserves its place in movie history because it does feel like a prototype of what's to come. Uh, But it gets approved upon dramatically with stuff like the Sandlot and especially home alone. So uh, if you're interested in seeing where those movies kind of originated from, probably worth the watch. But if you don't have a strong nostalgia, I, you're not missing much. What about you? Uh, Yeah, I'd have to probably agree with that assessment. I, uh, it's hard for me to take off the nostalgia hat with this one because I do, there's a lot of it that I forgive because I do enjoy it. 
it's another one of those where I don't think it's as close as Footloose because Footloose was that surprise film where we're like, God, this movie was so close to being great if they had just fixed a few little things. I think there's a lot bigger problems with this. And it's another one of those where I guess my expectation of what I want as a 35-year-old man watching a movie is probably a lot different than a movie that was geared towards children, even be it in the 80s. So I I think that's where it falls flat. I think it's a, a you know, if you want to watch a movie with your kid from the 80s, I think it's a good starter. And, and maybe like you were saying, it's a good, you know, starting movie for Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you can kind of prime them and get them ready for that kind of adventure movie. But at the end of the day, I, I think there are better movies you can watch, but it does have, I think, a cultural relevance that's that's worth watching at least once. Yeah, I've said it before about other movies. To me, it's more iconic than it is actually good. But there's some value. Mm. There's some value in that. Yep. Alrighty. So the next movie we're reviewing for this trilogy is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You, I believe you'll be taking helm on the the chop shop. It's your turn. That is correct. We're going to call that a family friendly, right? I would assume out of our seven categories. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I guess a little bit of science fiction because it involves talking turtles and rats, but yeah, family mm -hmm. friendly. So with that said, your potential categories you're going to have to turn that into next week are horror, blockbuster, Oscar bait, miniseries, comedy, or sci-fi. Let's spin the wheel of destiny and see what you're getting. Just not comedy. Oh, Just not comedy. Blockbuster. I feel like that's that's what you had to turn Lost Boys into, isn't it? E- what did you have to turn Lost Boys into? Yes, Blockbuster. Yeah, because I, I I upped the uh, the gore factor, the action factor at the mansion. So do you wanna you wanna say spend it again so we don't have two blockbusters? It's up to you. You got it. You know that was what fate handed you. Do you want to test fate? That's what I'm asking you. You can get one mulligan re-roll, but whatever winds no, up coming up next, because, you got. No, because I'm not risking getting comedy because it is, by definition, a family-friendly comedy. So I don't want to risk trying to make it even more of a comedy. So so I spun the wheel again just to see what you were going to miss out on, hoping that I could make you feel bad that it was Oscar bait. It rolled comedy. <laughs> Somebody up there still loves me. <laughs> yeah thank you, right. Brett. you you made me feel even better about my decision all right so next week you're you're re-entering the realm of blockbuster i can only imagine what that means you got two blockbusters in a single trilogy but yeah i, I don't want to i don't want to get my my expectation my hopes up for what i want to see from it now that you know we're we're bringing anthropomorphic turtles <laughs> into into the to the equation so we'll see I look forward. I look forward to it. Hopefully you don't just recreate or read the synopsis of Michael Bay's TMNT because that would be that would be, you know, funny, but lazy, you know, and I want to take that away from you before you even (laughs) try. Listen, Um, I I might rip off Michael Bay for a blockbuster, but it's not going to be fucking TMNT. I promise you that. (laughs) All righty. Well, we hope to see you back next week. Travis, any final words? In fourth grade, I stole my Uncle Max's toupee and glued it to my face when I played Moses in my Hebrew school play. Just a little fun fact. All right. <laughs> I really you... thought I was going to get a hey, you guys. Eh, I don't feel good about, uh, yeah, no. 
Okay, you know what? It's it's the robot. What's the robot's name? What's your name? SL0T4. Hey, you guys. <laughs>